Welcome to the Medical Treatment Decisions and the Law podcast, hosted by me, Christopher Johnston QC, from Sergeants in Chambers. Today, I'm joined by Tom O'Connor from Sergeants in Chambers, who's been a clerk uh, with me for over 24 years, a long time, Tom. Um, today, we're talking about Chapter 6 of Medical Treatment Decisions and the Law. This is a bonus episode. Tom wasn't an author of the chapter, but he has lived and breathed these cases probably throughout those 24 years, haven't you, Tom? I certainly have. Good afternoon. You can find out more about Tom and all of the clerking team in the description of the website and in the description of this episode. So, Tom... What we're going to talk about today is a little bit about the work you've done. We're yep. then going to talk about emergency cases. Yep. Uh -huh. And then we're going to talk a little bit about cases where you've got a little bit more time, where you won't be going quite as grey in dealing with them. Mm -hmm. And maybe round up with some final reflections from you about how much you've enjoyed this job and how much it's been having to put up with people like me or other members of chambers causing you unnecessary stress. Thank you. Um, so just to give some context, what would you say, Tom, are the biggest cases you've been involved in in the medical treatment field or the ones that stand out the most for you? Um, the first case that really galvanised my interest in medical ethics was the conjoined twins case, which I think mm -hmm. is quoted as re-A. Yeah. Um, so that was Nicola Davies and yeah. Adrian Whitfield, was it? it? Started, well, it started with Hugh Lloyd originally, yeah. um, and then Adrian Whitfield joined as, as the leader. Nicola Davies's role was, uh, as I understand it from memory, a government role. Yeah. I think where the government wanted to have a view because of the nature of the case and establishing best interest. Um, and what I found quite particularly interesting about that case was how Agent Whitfield had described it as a as almost like a philosophical debate. Yeah, rather than a kind of pure legal argument. Yeah, so pure law. Yeah. Um, and it was, yeah, it was an incredibly interesting case. And ever since then, I... I I knew about Sir Robert doing the Bland case. So Sir Robert Francis, yes. Yeah, Sir Robert Francis uh, had done the the Bland case, which was before I'd started, but I yeah. was aware of it. So I knew that we were on the right on the cusp of cases in relation to medical treatment of so best the interest. First big yeah. one conjoined twins case, fascinating case, highly difficult decision, very yeah. fraught for everyone involved. Any other cases that stand out for you? And. From there, I think other big cases I particularly remember Charlotte. There was a case called Charlotte Wyatt, yeah, which Hugh Lloyd was involved in, and I remember that case distinctly because I'd listed it the week before, um, but I don't think anybody had quite anticipated the involvement that the, the, the press would have had. The family had gone to the press, so from from one case being essentially in camera, it had become a case that. I think the clerk of the rules probably felt should have gone before the president that had gone before another judge because they're very big decisions to make. And when uh, we talk about listing yeah. a case, that's asking the court to put a case before a judge. Indeed, yes. Okay. Uh, in this particular case, uh, the clerk of the rules probably felt that the case could have gone to a president, but at the time we didn't quite know um, the significance, the of, significance of the case. So one yeah. of the important factors, I suppose, in that phone call can be when you're talking to a solicitor or a client, 
um, what's the significance, what's at the heart of this yeah. and how significant will it be for the judges yeah. deciding it and the parties involved. It might help in terms of lay listeners just to explain a little bit, rewind slightly and say, well, what does a, what does a clerk do? That's uh, a good question. I, I'm not sure how many clerks actually know what a clerk does until <laughs> they've actually started clerking. Yeah. Um, it was once described, I remember reading a passage about clerking, which I think was a, there was a high court judge called McGarry that described it, a bit of a cross between a theatrical agent and a whole host of other things. Um, essentially being a, a PA, yeah. a coach, um, a trainee, a mentor, an accountant, a business manager. Essentially, as clerks, our role is to make the job of a barrister easier so that all the barristers essentially should be worrying about is the law and the presentation of their cases and liaison with solicitors, all the other aspects to being a essentially a self-employed business. Um, ideally, they leave with us and we yeah. make decisions on their so behalf. you're the liaison between someone like me, a barrister, and those who instruct me yeah. on, on the classical model. You can get direct yeah. instruction, but the usual then would be a solicitor would send instructions and you would deal with them as a clerk um, and help in the administration of that. Mm -hmm. But then also presumably in these cases, you've got a large involvement in the procedural aspects of ensuring what we're talking about before, which is listing, yep. getting the case on before in court and in front of the right judge. Exactly. Um, and allocating cases on the basis of the barrister being the right person for the case, availability. Yeah, um, so two the big things the there. Yeah. 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 So on the emergency cases, which we'll talk about in a second, there's availability is can be quite a significant issue. It can. You could be ringing your barristers at any time of the day. Quite often it's a Friday evening sometimes if if uh, clinicians need to get an order before the weekend yeah. uh, or any, any particular circumstances. I mean, I have been called at one or two o'clock in the morning on a, on a, on a few occasions. Um, in fact, just, just uh, I think a few weeks ago on a Sunday morning, I was called at about five o'clock in the morning uh, asking me who I would have available. And once so I look, a coffee, looking I, at that kind of emergency <laughs> process... Um, so how does it work from from the chamber's point of view? Is there an emergency contact line? What, what does it work and how is that staffed or managed at our end? We have a, an emergency contact number on in for Chambers on the website. So yeah. uh, Chambers can be contacted 24-7 at any point. And that call will go through to our out-of-hours um, agency, Comexo, who will then put the call through to one of us. Um, essentially, it would usually be Lee or myself. Uh, so that's Lee, Joe, Lee Johnson, Lee Johnson, the senior yeah. junior clerk. So it's not like a big red phone, but someone will be on point or on call um, on the clerking side yeah. for those calls. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, what might be helpful if we deal with, uh, let's deal with an adult case first mm -hmm. um, and look at how from your point of view those calls come in how they're managed. And when we're talking about that, it's probably helpful to, if we have, think a little bit about um, what's very helpful in terms of information that you can receive, because um, you and I know, and everybody involved in these cases knows that those calls are not made lightly in mm -hmm. the emergency situation. They're highly stressful situations, but they also need to be dealt with as well as possible uh, in the time available. And it is remarkable, actually, the court's responsiveness 
in those cases. And I think that's maybe if we talk that through from the ground up. So I presume you would first be aware of, say, this adult case coming through from that mobile phone ringing when you were, you're on call, if you like. Yeah, so, um, I mean, essentially, if, if you're looking at an out-of-hours call, say, for example, on a Friday evening, yeah. where we haven't had counsel instructed before. Um, so a new, what, new case, Yeah, never heard about it before the call comes in. So the call comes in. Uh, essentially, as, as good as solicitors are at knowing the urgency of their cases, one thing we like to try and do is to sort of get the background of a case to triage how urgent it is. Because if you are going to go before an emergency out-of-hours judge, on a Friday evening, you need to be making sure you should be troubling that judge on a Friday evening. Yeah, so evening. the first so, question someone like me get mm-hmm. might get on the phone is, why is this urgent? Yes. So you're looking at that information and detail. And of course, everyone's perception of what is urgent at a particular time can be different in terms of the legal profession, but essentially a life and death, we need to get an order to treat someone, otherwise they're going to die. This is pretty much as cut and dry and urgent reason to get before an out-of-hours judge. Yeah. Um, I mean, you can see that sometimes. It, it can seem a bit surprising, for example, to get a cesarean section case mm-hmm. or anything to do with a pregnancy on an emergency basis, because often the first reaction, understandably, the court will be, well, this is a nine-month process. Why wasn't this flagged before? Yes. Um, and I suppose part of it is you, you can't rewrite history. You are no, where you, you are on the Friday. Yeah, so it could be somebody's yeah. just presented, yeah, and it, that's useful information. This is maybe mm-hmm. this is somebody's come off the street, and it's the first time the trust knows about that particular problem. Yeah, so it could be a capacity problem. It's their concern someone doesn't have capacity. And so essentially, what we would do is contact the out of hours. So from around about half past four on a Friday would be would be constituted as out of hours court time. Um, so what we then do is contact the security desk at the high court. Um, it's important that we get the information because that information is going to get passed on to the out-of-hours security desk. He'll find the, he'll, he'll ask us what the information is, what the background to the case so is. So let, let's work yeah. that through. So clearly the mm-hmm. first pieces of information is going to be the name of the person, it's going to be their date of birth, it's going to be who's the trust involved, presumably any other potential parties. Um, yeah. Yeah, and if it's, an, if it's an adult who lacks capacity, obviously there may well be the need for the official solicitor to be contacted as well. So we may often ask the trust if they've been in touch with the official solicitor because one thing um, particularly we might need to be alive for, and I would I'd probably sort of let Lee know, is that if I'm making an application urgently for a trust involving an adult, um, it's to be alive to the fact we may may well need to also have a role to, to employ for the official solicitor if they were to approach us just so we're alive to it. And likewise, if it's a child, um, Kafka has to be put on notice as well. So with an adult, that'll be the official solicitor. Has the official solicitor been contacted? Mm-hmm. Presumably you'd be saying, if they've not, well, that's an, you know, mm-hmm. an item that needs to be high up the to-do list. Yeah. If they have been contacted, you need to know who in the official solicitor has been there. Yeah. And similarly, in a children's case with... With Kafkas. Yeah, and, and more often than not, solicitors will know will know that already. But yeah. of course, sometimes they won't have come across this kind of this kind of scenario before. It's a, it's a it's quite a niche practice area. So um it's not an everyday sort of case that a solicitor would naturally have. Some there's some solicitors we're more familiar with than others that do a lot of this work. And there may, may be others that aren't so unf- you know familiar with it. And then it's a case of us just trying to assist them as to how to go about the process and make sure they've got the right information. I mean, the the interesting point you raise about 
making sure contact is being made mm-hmm. up in relation to other potential parties, ensuring representation for other potential parties. And that's really because the judges don't want to be making an ex parte decision. It may feel like an ex parte decision, mm-hmm. but they want as much representation on all sides as possible. Of course. And yeah. that's against the background. And uh, there were some significant concerns raised uh, in the REMB case about how cesarean section cases, for example, had been dealt with mm-hmm. prior to that point. So what you're doing on a practical level is trying to put into effect what those judges have said, which is let's try and make these hearings, even if they're in a hurry, mm-hmm. as much about hearing from um, not just the trust, but also from uh, the patient, whether that's through and, the officials. Yeah, and the parents and yeah. the family too. Yeah, yeah so family and an mm-hmm. adult case mm-hmm. and children, uh, if it's children, Kafkas, and trying to ensure... The, so it's in everyone's interests. Mm-hmm. It's not that it's adversarial. It's not an adversarial process, but it's in everyone's interests that people get represented. Indeed. And th- th- there's, there's, there's often usually particular reasons as to why there may not be consent for particular issues, which is it's often why dialogue between parties is so essential because it could be, you know, that we might necessarily need to trouble the court if we can... Yeah, so if you've got someone who gets representation, there could be some restoration of faith, communication lines could open up and it avoids the conflict and therefore avoids the need for the court. Yeah. All right, well, I interrupted you when you were describing, so you'd contact security. (laughs) Yeah, the security desk, um, and that would apply for a Friday evening or any time out of normal court hours, that you would ring the high court and you'd get the out-of-hours security desk and you'd ask to speak to the clerk. Um the clerk for the emergency court, the family division yeah. clerk, essentially. Um, and they would ring you up. Uh, you'd leave your, your number. They ring back. You give them the background as to why you need to approach a judge to get an order. Um, and uh, you wouldn't normally know who the emergency out-of-hours judges are. Often the clerk of the rules won't actually know who's sitting in the evening. Yeah. Um, but there'll always be a duty judge available. So... Anything else about that initial contact or do you want to take me on to what, what, what can happen well, next? No, I mean, all I would say more in terms of the emergency, using the emergency judge is we're finding a lot more cases involving welfare and residence cases, which is more of an ongoing kind of a dull issue. Um, yeah. This is a slightly separate topic. So that's deprivation but, of liberty issue. Yeah. yeah. But we do, we, we're getting the impression the court, the court protection may just try to deal with separate matters on an emergency basis. That hasn't happened as yet, as far as yeah. I'm aware, but we have got the court okay. protection court, a separate court protection yeah. court. But in terms of the medical treatment decisions, um, yes, there's always going to be a judge available. One, one key thing for solicitors to always have in mind is that you don't necessarily have to issue the application to get her before a high court judge. You can undertake to issue thereafter. So if it's a very urgent case where we just need to get that order, we get before the judge, we get the order, and then we can undertake to issue thereafter. So there's no need to panic to get the application actually physically into yeah. court. And it, But in that context, I'd say it's always very important to maintain a contemporaneous record of the information that's yeah. being supplied. Mm-hmm. So you could be providing a particular piece of information, for example, that somebody doesn't have a father um, let's say that's the information that's been provided. But if subsequently it's determined there is a father and a children case, that you need to then correct the record. Mm-hmm. So at each stage, alliance will be made uh, for the fact that you're providing the best information you've got. But firstly, it's important to keep a record of that as you go along. 
And secondly, it's important to correct it if it proves to be wrong so that the judge can then say, well, I was working on, you know, mm-hmm. this case in the base of A, B and C. C is no longer the case. So I'm going to think again about it and, and come up with maybe a different determination. Once we've had a call back from the um, judge's clerk, we'll get the, the clerk's email address. Um, and what you're hoping to look to provide them with is any kind of evidence that you've got in relation to your application. So if you've got a witness statements from the hospital, particularly clinician statements is what, yeah. is what you're looking for. So, um, and even if counsel had sort of, you know, a, a draft, some, some sort of draft order available, that yeah. would be advantageous. But so the- I leave that part to, to, to you lawyers to deal with that in, in terms of, in terms of logistics, for me, it's it's a case of getting the clerk's email address details. And if there's information that we can pass on before we actually make that application that can help inform the judge's decision, the more information, the better, essentially. So it's you, that's your involvement. And then you might be saying, you might be picking up the phone to another clerk and saying, it looks like, for example, the official solicitor might need representation mm-hmm. in this case can we see if there's somebody else available another barrister available who can deal with the case yeah so some so quite often in the past Lee or myself will be talking to each other about a case that we're, we're about to make an application and Lee may well have been approached by the official the solicitor or vice versa but naturally you don't want to go ahead as you say about ex parte applications it's best that we're waiting for everybody to be ready before we actually go ahead um in terms of logistics of the makeup of the hearing the judge's clerk will now um just send out uh, a link and they can send that to anybody else that needs to be attending in the hearing and that can all be done on a remote basis. Yeah. So maybe you've got not only representations that are being made, there might be time to receive some limited evidence from fr- through the, through, yeah. from the clinicians yeah, exactly. um, yeah. and any representations that can be made on the side mm-hmm. of the family yeah. in short order. Um, and is there... Anything else with this emergency process that you would highlight that you've had experience of where things might not have gone to plan, where certain information might have been helpful or any other elements that it's worth flagging to people in terms of if they ever get involved in an emergency case like this? Um, I think it's just really important to be sure that if you're going to be approaching a high court judge on an emergency basis, that you've got the evidence that you need to go ahead. But I, you know, I leave that to the, I leave that yeah. to the members of the chambers to be speaking to the solicitor. I mean, that's always the, I say that's always the most important thing is to have that initial discussion before we do a go ahead that, that, you know, we think we're going to need to make an emergency application. They have that discussion with counsel. Counsel considers all the information that we've got to hand. Um, before we approach them and then obviously once once we, we've, we've got in touch with the court we're ready to go but um i don't know it's, it's, it's sometimes difficult with the trajectory of cases to know where one one case might go to, to you know from the next yes and that can be one of the issues is that you could have got a barrister for example who's a who was available on that friday night mm-hmm. but then there needs to be a subsequent a return date or an appeal. Yeah. yeah so there could be a return date you might need different counsel for that yeah um, or as you say, there may be an, an appeal. And I know in some cases they've managed to do both well, what, yeah, the well, hearing what, what and else? the appeal. I think the conjoined twins case, the appeal was very late at night, wasn't it? Yeah, often appeals can be almost in state, you know, straight after the High Court case, of course, if you're dealing with a medical treatment case, the, the constitution's and, found pretty quickly. And what yeah. I'm picking up and a really important message is once you're down this track, it's keeping the court informed you know, you're the conduit for that. Yeah. For example, it's no longer an emergency. This is resolved. They need to know that. Yeah. 
or it's no longer as urgent, they need to know that, or just keeping the more dialogue the with the clerk of the rules in a general sense, the better from a I mean, the, 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 the reason why we're able to achieve this um, as effectively as we are is because of is because of the clerk of the rules and good relationships that um, particularly I've got a good relationship with Sinead Ahern in the clerk of the rules and straight away we kind of know if I'm ringing her what it is it's it's a medical and because they're very good at what they do they know immediately a medical case by, by its very definition is going to be urgent and could trump some of the other cases that they've got dealing with their list um and Sinead will often, you know, she can find even the daytime hearings. I mean, find it, judges free for me and so on. There's so but, many bad news cir- mm-hmm. stories circulated about law and the legal profession and the courts and so forth. It's always struck me this is a bit of a hidden good news story in that it's a complete opposite of Jarndyce and Jarndyce in this situation. Yeah. What you have is a court service and the people working there in the, in, as you say, in the list office. Um, and the judges who are being completely responsive to what they need to do to achieve, if you like, Parliament's ends in passing the legislation yeah. uh, and what people want in these cases, which is the assessment as well as can be done of best interest. In the best interest, yeah. Um, and, and a lot of the lawyers that you see in this work that work regularly in it have a very good collegiate approach with each other about yeah. the best interest. Yeah, it's not adversarial. Yeah, non-adversarial. Yeah, I mean, it's it's about yeah. transparency. It's about trying to get the best result exactly so. for the say the particular patient. Yeah, quite right. So, looking at the cases where you've got more time, mm-hmm. and you're looking at the directions hearing where the judge, as I say, is looking to put signposts for the future and how the case will be managed. Yeah. Uh, what would you say an important message is about? those directions application or before you make them? I I think generally one of the most important things to try and do is to always, it's the old adage, just get before the bench. If we're not quite sure how many days we're going to need for an actual final hearing to get the order, that doesn't necessarily matter. The the first thing is to just get before the judiciary. They'll tend to take over from there once we get before them. So So that directions here is very important to get that. So Um, I think mm -hmm. one of the things from your point of view is it's helpful to know when that, application is going to be put in and, and what it's about b- before uh, it's formally lodged with the court. Yeah, so I'd if I'm liaising with a solicitor about a particular new application that's about to go in, I'd, I'd always sort of encourage them just before they're about to make the application just to let us know so that when the application goes into the court, it usually goes, you'll have a copy to the court of protection and if it's yes. inherent jurisdiction, then it'll be transferred to the high court. So. Yeah. One trick is often just to obviously issue it with the cop, we, but we let the High Court know that there's something that's going to come over from the Court of Protection shortly. So again, they're alive communication, communication, yeah. communication. So it's not just coming in cold. Uh, and obviously if the solicitor's spoken to me or to Lee or to one of my colleagues, they can put in the covering letter, we're instructing so-and-so from Sergeant Sin, please kindly liaise with their clerk. So yes. we'd have already spoken to the court to let them know. And then when the application comes in, they've actually got it there with the name of the case and they know exactly who, you know, they, they knew it was coming and they can speak to us. Um, because what's important, I think, is to just try and gauge from the court as to when they're free. So to gauge judges' availability first and foremost. Um, the court can tell us when, they look, when they've got good availability uh, and then I can go back to the parties, be it the trust, whoever the official system might be instructing. There may be parents as well. There may be other parties. Um, and work towards an amicable date where everybody's going to be available for the yeah. first initial. But have that focused on the judicial availability yeah, but first because it's the importance of the right person making the decision with enough time. Yeah, so that you've got your judge available first and foremost, yeah. 
But usually on a directions hearing, if it's only short for an hour or two, Sinead's usually pretty, pretty flexible about getting a date in. So, Been fascinating talking through your involvement in these cases, and we could talk all day about it, but mm-hmm. just finally, I'd be interested in your reflections on what this type of work means to you and how much you've enjoyed it or if you haven't I, I do it or, I do or, find it I do find it tremendously um rewarding and fulfilling because you feel like um and all of us are sort of different cogs of of a, of a wheel but it, essentially it's about best interest um yeah, I touched on the conjoined twins case from earlier because what, what was fascinating about that was was the sort of pure law element to it um but by definition of urgency, um, and in the legal profession, obviously people often think things are urgent, but often things are urgent because we've left deadlines till the last minute. Or, mm. um, But if you were talking yeah. to, I don't know, Junior Clark, who's come to the bar, would you encourage them to get involved in this type of work? And if so, why? Um, because it's fascinating. And I think anyone as a, as a healthcare practitioner, it's the kind of area that they'd be interested, very interested to do, um, because it's it's medical ethics. You you go before high court judges. You're, um, you're it's not it's not supposed to be adversarial. So essentially, you're working together to try to establish the best interests of of, of the patient. Um, and it it just brings up some tremendously interesting areas. I mean, I'm I'm not I'm I'm not a lawyer, you know, I'm a, I'm a layperson. But just the background to the types of areas of cases that we've done, I've I've always found it tremendously stimulating. Um, to well, to, to the fact that it's the fact that it's an emergency. A lot of things can be an emergency yeah. for medical treatment. But the really is, yeah, yeah, the life and death element yeah. of that yeah. human interest. Yeah, the human interest element, particularly. Yes, yeah. Yeah, we're not just kind of suing each other here as lawyers. We're, we're yeah. actually we're actually working with people and human beings, and that's you know that's what I find tremendously interesting. Well, thanks for sharing all that with us, and thanks for all the work you've done for me over the last twenty four years. Thank you, uh, it's been fascinating talking about it. And so I'll leave things there. And I should say that today we've been talking about Chapter Six of Medical Treatment Decisions in the Law, published by Bloomsbury Professional. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank you. To find out more about the speakers or how we may assist you and your clients, you can visit our website at sergeantsin.com or call a member of our clerking or client care team at 0207 427 5000.